0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author and clinical professor of psychiatry, Georgetown Medical School, Dr. Norman Rosenthal. His new book is Poetry R.X., How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. Imagine your therapist writing a prescription for Do Not Go Gentle Into That Night, by Dylan Thomas, or Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson, or a Shakespeare sonnet, as well as prescribing an anxiety medication. Dr. Rosenthal is that therapist. He was the psychiatrist who first described seasonal affective disorder and pioneered the use of light in its treatment during his 20 years at the National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Rosenthal is the author of several books and currently maintains a private clinical and coaching practice in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. His work has earned him national and international attention in the world of psychiatry and psychology <clears throat> as well as in the media. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, Poetry Rx, I have to say, and I, I'm probably uh, not alone in this, but I think of poetry. I think of all these kinds of you know, esoteric works. I had to take poetry. And when I was in college, that's probably the last time that I really indulged in it. And it was kind of, I thought, painful and didn't really understand it, you know, eighteen, nineteenth century poetry. But your book is so I, I guess it's like it's it's an eye-opener for uh, it it's really inspiring. and i I guess the first question is, how did you and when did you decide to use poetry as medicine?
1: Thank you. Um, It was an evolving understanding that poetry has this capacity. It started off with my own personal experience. When poetry helped me, there was a time when I left South Africa and I left behind my family. And there was this poem called Letter to My Mother by a very famous Italian poet. um, And I've included that in my collection And I found myself reading it again and again and reading it to other people and in retrospect I thought, what was it about that poem that was so comforting? And I realized that I had not been aware of how guilty I felt about letting my people go, letting my family go and leaving them. And they had been so gracious about letting me go that I I kind of understood what their sacrifice was in doing that. And So it already became clear to me that certainly as far as I was concerned, poetry could really be like a balm or a medicine. And then uh, there's a sort of pivotal incident that happened that's in my introduction to Poetry Rx, where it happened with a patient of mine, you know, in a telephone conversation. And then I thought, wow, you know, this is really fascinating. And I started... Gathering poems that I thought not all poems can have this effect, but but many can, and I started gathering them and asking patients to bring in their own experiences, and I found so many had kind of xeroxed a poem, stuck it on their fridge, and gone to it again and again, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting, and so. It sort of percolated in my mind over years until I found a way of putting it all together. And I must say the pandemic with its solitude and its deprivations gave me the opportunity to cone in and focus and say, you know, everybody should understand what they can get from these things that we all or many of us have learned in this kind of stuffy way back at school.
0: Yeah, because and going back to that stuffy way, it was always an English professor who was interpreting the poems. And now we have you, Dr. Rosenthal, a psychiatrist interpreting the poems, each one of these poems. I, I chose a couple. I, I wanted to kind of, I think it's good to put a face on them so and put a face on your work. And I chose you know, a couple of the Robert Frost poems because I think most people are familiar with Robert Frost, but they reflect... Um, Themes that are, I think, uh, very current. Um, So, can we take those? And because at the end of each poem, you have the, you actually write the takeaways. What can we take away from this poem? You really Mm -hmm. hold our hand going through this Mm -hmm. whole process. So, let's. How about stop the Robert Frost poem, "Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening," about loss, Um, and you're talking about the pandemic. So many of us have lost. There are so many losses, physical, emotional, all of those.
1: Yes, yes. Um, You know, that is such a gorgeous poem. And and on the surface, it seems so simple. Um, He's Obviously, he's in this little carriage, the horses carrying them along, and he sees the neighbor's woods filling up with snow. And he's almost drawn into staying there, staying there, staying there, And why does he move? Why does he gear himself up to keep going? He said, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And I was reminded of a a very wonderful woman that was a client of mine, a patient of mine, who was suicidal. And the only thing that was keeping her from carrying out that threat was that she had promises to keep, people, she, people who needed her, and it occurred to me that this need to be needed, or the, the fact that we're needed, is like an anchor that holds us into the world, even when we feel so despairing and so down. So it's a very hopeful poem, because it, it acknowledges that sometimes we just feel exhausted, we can't go on, but people need us. We have promises to keep, and it's the power of that pull that is so important to understand and acknowledge.
0: And so when you are understanding that poem in that way that we need to be needed, and that is what keeps us on with an actual, with a patient, do you use, say, this particular poem and then also, let's say the patient is suicidal or extremely anxious or whatever, medication as well with the... Uh, you know, in terms of of, uh, treatment?
1: Yes, yes. I I, I want to really clarify that, that medications are often a mainstay of treatment for people with severe depression, severe anxieties, uh, many things that um, I am by no means suggesting poetry as a substitute or medication, or therapy, or anything else. People say to me, you know, do you prescribe poetry? I say, yes, I do prescribe poetry, but I prescribe good sleep, exercise, good diet, self-care, attending your therapy sessions or your 12-step programs. I prescribe all of these things, and I think the modern clinician really needs to be eclectic and use whatever works, and all I'm saying is, this now gives us another tool to deploy in our attempts to help people who are suffering.
0: Well, Jane Brody describes it, I, and then I get, well, the columnist for the New York Times is uh, poems as a liter, literary panacea for the pandemic. So as you say, that's just uh, part of the arsenal to help treat uh, uh, d- depression and all of the uh, um, maladies that we've been talking about. So, but what about other psychiatrists? Are they doing this, it's other psychologists, or are you the only well, one?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't surveyed other psychiatrists, but I guess what I like to do, and I've done this all along, is I like to try and be out front and say, hey, guys, hey, ladies, hey, Gentlemen, uh, let's, let's give it a shot. What can it hurt? And just to alert people to the possibility that there's a whole world out there that could not just heal, not just cure, where that's a heavy word, but enliven, enrich, inspire. These are all shades of the same thing that we're all as therapists looking to help people accomplish. And, yes, sometimes they can be that tether that holds you to life. Uh, a poem that maybe you look at every day. And I've certainly heard examples of people who who look at a poem, maybe it's the Lord's, not the Lord's Prayer, the um, sonnet, uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that, um, you know, can just keep us holding on, you know, some feeling that words put down beautifully on paper expressing a profound idea or belief or hope. Um, can really make a difference.
0: And I think one of the things is that many of us think, well, you know, these poems were written in the 1800s and 1900s and that the themes were different and they don't apply to our modern-day problems, and that's not true. And you seem to point that out, I think, in all of the poet, uh, poems that you chose.
1: Yes, uh, a lot of them are. I've, I've gone all the way into the 20th century, of course, but I think one thing that distinguishes these poems, is they've stood the test of time. They've comforted people and inspired people for centuries. And I say to myself, you know, is there something about something that fascinates people for centuries that's very, very special? The Mona Lisa, the works of Van Gogh. um, These things that people come to again and again, they line up to see the Mona Lisa. What is it about that painting? What did... Leonardo da Vinci do that that made it so magnetic? Uh, the works of Vermeer, the internal. What's it about the interior of, of Dutch landscape, the, the, the interior? What is it about a, a woman pouring uh, from a jug or a, a girl with a pearl earring that happened hundreds of years ago? Why is it still intriguing us? Why do we line up for it? Because there's something about that creative genius who put that paint on that canvas in a way that nobody else could do. And that's what happens with these poems, is that somebody put those words down. Um, these woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep. How amazing is that?
0: Then why do you think we're so afraid of poetry, Is I mean, why do we, you know, yes, we'll go, you know, mentioned going to museums and looking at beautiful paintings and, and, and relating to it. What are some of the reasons that we've been afraid to embrace poetry in the same way? Well, I, I think
1: it's how it's presented. You know, we know those teachers at school who made uh, the work come alive, and we know those teachers who made us just stare out the window waiting until the bell rang and the, and the class was over. And and what I've hoped to do, what I've hoped to do in this book is to be that person I would have wished had said to me, this is really simple. This person is saying thus and such over here. Why is he choosing that word? Why is she choosing that word? Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Hope is a bird. Um it's it's perching in my in my head, in my soul. isn't this amazing? You know the idea of an actual little bird and then uh, and singing and telling me it's going to be okay. It doesn't stop. and it doesn't ask you anything to hope for something. So why not? You know what I'm saying? it's I'm trying to make it real for people and then say these are the specific things that you can pull from this poem. These are actual takeaways. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the poet and how he or she came to write this particular poem. And um, I think as somehow people are relating to it in a way that makes me very happy because that really was the goal of my writing the book.
0: Well, I think you've done that. It becomes, it's real. It becomes real. And, um, the second poem, the um, Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. Let's talk about that one, because that has to do with choices. And we're always confronted with choices, right? From uh, Yeah, so, uh,
1: that's yeah. the story of our life. And that's, how much yeah. we succeed or fail really depends on which choices we make. So there he comes to this two roads diverging in a yellow wood. And that is a sort of a representation. Firstly, it's a real, it's a real thing. We can see it, and I love the yellow trees, you know, because they're so distinctive. They, you know, follow the yellow brick road. That yellow is very, very interesting. And at the same time, uh, how often in our life um, do we get confronted with a binary decision? I was living in New York, and I was loving my time at Columbia. Um, but I felt like my research future really took me down to Maryland to the National Institute of Mental Health which is where I ended up being able to describe and and treat seasonal affective disorder with light therapy and that really is a defining event in my in my life that was my two roads diverging in the yellow wood and often I thought what if I had stayed in New York how would it have been and then I think to myself you know I wouldn't have met the wonderful people that I met here I wouldn't have described seasonal affective disorder Um, and you know you say I'll I'll go back there sometime and then Robert Frost says yes but as way leads on to way the chances are you're not going to come back so these choices are really important and um, they're defining but At the same time, it's human nature to think of the road not taken. How would it have been? What would it have been like? Um, It's just, I think, how a lot of us think. It's not necessarily very useful thinking because you already took the road. I guess you could go back, but the time is different. The moment has passed. Oftentimes, you're not going to go back, or if you go back, it'll be a different place. So... He is really dealing with a fundamental aspect of our thinking processes. Which road do we take? How do we choose it? How do we deal with the road we didn't take? How do we accept that choice that we made and just move on with our lives? It's, that's why it's such an intriguing thing. That's why it's the equivalent of the Mona Lisa. We stand in front of it in amazement at the genius of the man who is able to articulate this brilliant fundamental fact of our modern life in such a short poem.
0: Well, you know, you're talking about your choice uh, to go to Washington, not stay in New York, and you, that's the road that you took. And you took it and had a lot of success. So is it different? I mean, when you're, and then you look back and think, well, what if I had taken another road? You may have been just as successful, but doing something different. But many people take make a choice, and they feel or they're suffering because they feel it wasn't a good one, and then they look back with regret. Is that a different pro- Is That becomes a different process?
1: It, it might be a different process, or every person's process is going to be different. But then I think, and, and I know that uh, you're a social worker by training, you're a therapist, the therapist will work with that person to try to understand what is it about the choices that she or he did take uh, what are the good things you know maybe the, this person met a spouse maybe had certain children maybe loves those children maybe you know if they had been in another place they would have met somebody different and imagine how would life be without your daughter or without your son and 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 help a person appreciate the choice that they did make uh, and Uh, you know, get in touch with it. So I think everybody's story is going to be different, but I think that one way you can think about it is is making the best of the choice that you did take. And sometimes you can track back. Sometimes you can. For example, I had a year where I went and spent some time uh, once a month in New York City, met with friends, did all the New York things that I can't do in Washington, Broadway and other stuff. And um, yes, I didn't go back, but if there was anything I missed about the city, I was able to recapture some of it and decide, you know, it's wonderful. I can visit any time I want and, uh, and rejigger it in my brain.
0: So there are many roads. It's not just you made one choice and there was the other choice, but now you go back and you have lots of choices, maybe oh, well, there more there choices. There are many ways
1: of handling the major choice you've made. Like if you left New York, you can visit it. And, and when I was leaving, a really wonderful supervisor of mine, a, a very excellent psychiatrist, she said, you can always come back and visit. We're still here. And helped me realize that I was sort of making it more of a doomsday thing than it needed to be. It's not that far away, and and so you can have a bit of your cake and eat it too. Just can't have the whole cake, yes. as we all know.
0: <laughs> as as we all want the whole cake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay. Now this is. I think applies to a lot of people, the aging population, the baby boomers, I being one of them. So I was interested in this poem. I guess Wendell Berry was the, the, the poet, but uh, about getting old, old aging. Um, and um, let's talk yeah, about that. I, I love yeah. that
1: poem. In fact, yeah. it was brought to me by, um, A social worker friend of mine, now 80 years old, and she said she'd given it to many people, and many people had found it very helpful. And to me, you know, she'd done my field work for me because she sort of test-piloted it with many different people. And when I saw it and read it, I could easily understand why it was so helpful. It started off, um, I know I am old, and I say so. Oh, I know I'm getting old and I say so. It was it was such a bold beginning because most of us shy away from the word old as though it were leprosy. And I I opened the the um, chapter saying, you know, I had a recent 50th high school reunion and somebody would say, "Oh, you you're looking so young or you've aged really well." Um everybody was Judging the fact that, in fact, we do not look like we did when we were seventeen years old. Let's face it. And um,
0: did you say that? I, I think this mm, was a Zoom reunion. Did you? Did you?
1: It was a Zoom reunion. Yes. Yeah. It was a Zoom reunion. And um, so, exactly, because we're all over the world now. And the other thing is, if I'm if I'm introducing a friend, if, if I say, oh, meet this old friend of mine. Now, in the past, an old friend, that was a mark of honor, that our friendship is old. But the very word seems to bring chills into everybody. And, and, well, I'm not an old friend. We're long-standing friends. So when Wendell Berry comes out and says, you know, I know I'm getting old and I say so, it's a very bold statement in our ageist society. And then he goes on to make some very intriguing observations about getting old. You know, getting old is strange because it's you know, each time you see an old you you see some sign that you're getting old, you know, maybe you've got a limp, maybe you need a cane, maybe whatever, and you've got to get used to this new body, the new body that needs a cane or the new body that has to use his arms to lever himself out of the chair or whatever. And each time, it's like, wow, you know, this is kind of new. This is a new discovery. This body needs a, a bar next to my bathtub, or whatever the case may be, and um, reading glasses, hearing aids, whatever the situation. And um, you know, it's a, so instead of saying, "Oh my God, there goes another thing," you say, "Oh wow, this is a new experience. How does this feel?" It's not an old body, it's kind of all new, all over again. I have to get used to it. It's like, it's like when I felt the rush of hormones in my adolescence and I thought, what's going on here in my body? You know, something's happening here. And um, so, so he, he, with a poet and also with this curiosity and this, this uh, sharing, this curiosity and the sense of adventure, that life is a series of adventures and can be seen that way and we don't have to see it as a downhill slope um and uh, so it's a very inspiring poem and it's a very delightful um whimsical uh, poem that so i was so happy to include it in my collection
0: i i think one of the one of the key things for me that in uh, when you were uh, discussing this poem, is that uh, first you do have to admit, and I think you've alluded to that, I am old, not I am young and I'm trying, I'm old and I'm trying to be young and pretending and not even saying I'm old. First, you have to really, and then once you Id, be, admit to that, then you can look at the positive. This is this is new, this is new because I'm old. Um, well. Y- I have yes, a grandson yes who's no. five I- years old who says to me, well, you, Grandma, you are medium old. <laughs> <This is what> <laughs> me- <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: medium old. What a beautiful old. That's how old- thing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> medium old. That's yeah. what I'm going to tell myself all day long now.
0: That's right. <laughs> Cur-
1: courtesy of your grand- granddaughter, grandson. Grandson. Um, so uh, medium old is, is terrific. Yeah, well, you know... Um, you can say, I am old, and, and that's a, a reasonable thing. And, you know, you may need to say that. Let's say somebody goes to the airport where there are these long corridors that have to be traversed and needs, and, you know, they're, they're perfectly good on their feet, but they just can't walk a half a mile to the gate. So they get a, a wheelchair. That's, that's a time to say, I'm old. But like here we are having this conversation and I'm as delighted to talk with you as I would have been 50 years ago. So in that regard, I'm not old. I'm, I'm just alive and happy and engaged. And so it's not something we need to you know wear around our neck like uh, you, you know a, a, a medical alert all the time, but it is something that from time to time, it's good to acknowledge.
0: Oh, I have a question for you, because this is something that – well, this was pre-pandemic, and I was in the city most of the time, New York City, and going out to dinner with my uh, boyfriend of 30 years, a uh, partner. And he and I – this happened f- frequently, and you sit down. We would sit down at lunch or dinner, and the waiter, a young waiter, would come over and say to me, what would you like, young lady? Um, how are you doing, young lady? I'm not a young lady. I find that offensive. It's sort of just exactly the opposite of what we're talking about. So how do you address that? It's it's sort of like it's supposed to be a compliment, but it's really not a compliment. It's sort of dismissing who you really are.
1: Oh, I just think when I hear that, I just think uh, the waiter wants a bigger tip, and yeah, he's not going to get one if
0: he says that. <laughs> <laughs> forget about it. <laughs>
1: So, so to answer your question, yes. no, I, I don't mind that. I know the wait is just trying to um, be friendly, and, and I take it in that spirit. And you know, at, at, some, at some level, I, I'm a little, I share uh, Wendell Berry's delusion. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not old, I'm just a young person with unforeseen abilities. That's how he puts it.
0: But think, but but with a whole background of wisdom and all kinds of experiences. So when the waiter says, "Young lady," it's sort of dismissing that, isn't it? It's saying, "Well, it's really better to be young, not to be old, because old is not good. But old may be very, as we've been talking about, it can be very good." So, um,
1: well, I I just love hearing that you have a boyfriend of thirty years. I think that's <laughs> so wonderful. How's that for? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just think you know to know someone for thirty years and still call him your boyfriend. I think that's so much fun. It's so vibrant. <laughs> well,
0: that, great, it is. I, I uh, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, that's uh, this has been great talking to you. I have to say, but I do want to mention the book again, because people should go out and buy it, bookstores everywhere, Uh, Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life, and I've been talking to the author, Dr. Rosenthal, Norman Rosenthal, but we've just talked about a couple of the poems, and uh, there's just so much more in the book, so many more poems, it's just, um, it's great, it's a really, really great book, I I really enjoyed the book and enjoy the interview with you.
1: Thank you, likewise. Um, So, uh,
0: Dr. Rosenthal, website and or websites we can go to?
1: to Yeah, just one website should give you everything you need. Um, It's my name, normanrosenthal.com. So, um, that's it, normanrosenthal.com. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about my work and my background and um, blogs and things and also all the information. We do have another A book launch, a virtual book launch coming up on Tuesday evening, the 25th. It's out of Prairie Lights in Iowa City, but it's going to be um, broadcast over Zoom, and you can get information about that um, on the website and wherever you uh, Google it, you'll find it. And uh, come join us. Come enjoy the poetry along with us.
0: Great. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate this. Thank you.